This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guests today are Ian Macmillan, Martin Erig, and Jill Steinauer. And we're going to talk to them about a paper that the three of them have written about uh, the management of knowledge assets and how the impact it has on uh, the whole process of digitalization. Uh, uh, Jill, uh, Martin, Mac, thank you so much for joining us at Knowledge at Wharton. Glad to be here. Thank you. Oh, good to be here. Uh, Mac, why don't we start with you? Companies in almost every industry these days are trying to go digital. Uh, and your paper argues that when digitalization is done in the context of a company's strategic knowledge, that powerful growth opportunities can be uncovered. Uh, what, of, what exactly does this strategic knowledge consist and why does it matter so much in the context of going digital? Well, I think one of the key points that I'd like to make about this is people have, have embraced the term digitalization for digitalization's uh, sake and the reality is that uh, while we really need to take advantage of the fact that the world is going digital and knowledge can be digitized, uh, the, the, uh, the real opportunity lies in going beyond simply digitizing, that you need to think about the structure of knowledge that you have in your organization. You need to think about uh, the extent to which it's something that only you have or which is widely known in the industry and uh, you need to think a little bit about the degree to which it's tacit knowledge where you, you're beginning to get some sense of what the drivers are uh, that lead to outcomes and uh, places where you have such refined knowledge that you can actually put together equations that allow you to kind of optimize. So one needs to think about knowledge and the evolution of knowledge in a strategically competitive sense on those two dimensions, the degree of uh, diffusion, the amount of an other, uh, that other people have and you, uh, you alone uh, or either you alone have and then the degree to which this knowledge is, uh, has been uh, coded in, in a way that uh, it's easy for others to interpret or uh, uncoded in the sense that it's hard for people to... Uh, uh, articulate what they know, but they know it and uh, what they know is important. Martin, what do you think? Well, many people are interested in big data and digitalization. I mean, those are two big buzzwords and uh, only a few companies have really excelled in uh, using those concepts to drive growth, innovative growth. And I always say, well, big data is nice, but what is really important is big knowledge. What are the insights you gain from the data that drive your business, uh, that makes your customer base happy? And uh, similarly with digitalization, we have to have a more holistic approach on what are the assets that we can leverage in the pursuit of digitalization to really transform the enterprise. So uh, in our research, we want to go beyond those uh, big words and understand what are the knowledge-driven processes that enable executives um, to transform their businesses. We had actually talked about some of those knowledge processes a couple of years ago. Uh, in April 2015, uh, when uh, Knowledge at Wharton had interviewed both of you, 
about your paper. Uh, and you had uh, developed a framework uh, about how companies can leverage their strategic knowledge assets and use uh, uh, knowledge mapping as, as, as a technique to do that. Uh, before we start talking about Adobe, I wonder if you could re re recap that uh, framework uh, for our listeners. Definitely. Our map, our knowledge map, is based on the work of Max Brasso and his information space or iSpace. And it's two dimensions um, that are important. It's the structure of knowledge, whether it's unstructured tacit knowledge, knowledge in the heads of people, or structured codified explicit knowledge. That's knowledge that is written down um, in books, software, um, in text form. The second dimension is diffusion. How many people um, have access to that knowledge? Is it only a very small group of people, resides just in one company, or highly diffused, does the whole industry have access to it? So the framework puts those two dimensions of structure of information knowledge and diffusion of that uh, knowledge together. And basically what comes... Uh, what results is a two-by-two two matrix where you have unstructured, undiffused knowledge. That's usually where your core competence resides. Um, this is the subject matter experts, uh, the deep expertise that your company has uh, developed. The top left, this is where your intellectual property rights are, your patents. Uh, it's well-codified, well-structured knowledge, but you are in control of it, so it's on the undiffused side. And then uh, the top right quadrant, we have um, highly diffused, highly structured knowledge. So that would be your website, uh, marketing material um, that everyone has access to. And then finally, the bottom right quadrant, which is what we call conventional wisdom. So that's uh, knowledge that the entire industry has access to, a tacit belief, uh, a tacit understanding of what it means to work in that industry. So those four quadrants have to be exploited um, and uh, you have to create a knowledge network that helps you create competitive advantage. Great. Thank you. Uh, Mac, do you want Can to I interrupt to just briefly here? It would seem to me that it might be interesting to, at this point, say that Jill's here because her company has intuitively done exactly this. Mm. And, you know, that if you have a look at what you guys have done, it maps very mm -hmm. nicely onto the, uh, the framework that Martin mm -hmm. articulated, and that allows you to be embraced as part of the party as it were somebody has a contribution to make yeah i think that was really the interesting part when i took the class from martin and mac a couple of years ago and introduced the strategy map and it it, it dawned on me it's like wow adobe is is doing doing some of this and it would be wouldn't it be interesting if we could talk about that and so could, um, could you explain that to our audience exactly yeah, so we, how, how did the framework uh help you rethink what was going on at Adobe uh, in the context of this framework? Well, I just, I think part of it is just, um, I've been at Adobe for six years now, and understanding how uh, the framework made me look at some of the things that we do as a company through a different lens, mm. and made me start to understand that this is a map that that applies not only to what Adobe did, 
and does, but also what other companies do or aspire to do. And we, we um, brought forth three examples um, in the paper um, around how Adobe um, has brought tacit knowledge either from an acquisition or in the case of practitioners and really programized that, made it a program, and then brought it out to our customers. And that's, that's a practice that we call Adobe at Adobe, so that we're sharing our expertise as digital marketers. Bringing that to the marketplace not only helps our customers get better, but it also helps our customers understand that we have credibility and, and we use our own tools. And, and so, so there's kind of this... Um, uh, sort of a symbiotic relationship there. Um, the the other one we did was more around the structured data. Mm-hmm. So we have Adobe Digital Index, which, um, as, as you may know, um, Adobe has, um, in our tools, we are collecting, you know, pentabytes of, of data. Um, web analytics is just one example of that. In aggregate, though, you can get a lot of insight into trends. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what we do is we aggregate that data anonymously, but only from our customers that agree to this. Um, And then we're, we're, we're seeing trends and we're sharing trends in the marketplace. And uh, this is actually not only brings credibility in terms of what Adobe understands in terms of digital, but I think it it also um, helps companies start to think about uh, the trends in light of, you know, what's happening to them. And um, so they can start to anticipate that. So uh, one of the, the, the things about uh, uh, your structured data that I found very interesting was the use of uh, it in predicting uh, blockbuster movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did that process work exactly? Yeah, so I think that this is social data that mm. is collected and aggregated so that you can you can start to see, um, it's called share of voice. You know, a certain movie might be mentioned a certain number of times over, say, another movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also sentiment that comes along with social data. Is it, was it a positive comment or is it a negative comment? So those are the types of things that... that uh, companies are looking for in terms of understanding their social data because obviously we can't read them all. Um, You have to get an aggregate point of view. So it's kind of those sort of tactics that allow you to um, predict um, how well a movie is going to do. But it's a beautiful example, I think, of the difference between big data and big knowledge. I mean, many Mm -hmm. people have access to the data points um, but with the right tools, with the right processes, you were able to create insights mm-hmm. that only you, only your organization was able uh, to develop. And based on that, you built a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. And that's really looking at diffused data information out there and extracting unique insights that only you, your organization has to then um, be um, in a competitive position that others don't have. Mm-hmm. I think a piece of that is the mindset as well. The, the way that you guys approach the whole issue of how do we capture data and use data is much more strategic than simply, well, let's, just, let's get a bunch of data and run some analytics on it. 
I mean, you may not sit down and basically interview people, but as you indicated in your discussion, uh, what you're looking for is indicators that certain yeah. sentiments are used or certain uh, 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 data are emphasized out in the marketplace mm-hmm. and you bring that in rather than just mindless digitization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I, th- I think it is somewhat cultural. I mean, it's a little bit difficult to say because that's where I work. Um, but I think it is a, a culture at Adobe that um, not only from that sort of looking at a problem, maybe from a different angle and looking at data, certainly we're surrounded by it and how do we use that data to our best advantage. Yeah. Um, but also um, the freedom to try different things, right, and innovate, um, which I think a lot more companies are are, are really trying to, and struggling now with, you know, everything from digital to digital transformation to innovation, right? And how do they inspire this inside of their own walls? And um, I can can say that, you know, we certainly have um, seen in the marketplace for many years the idea that we're going to aggregate data and that it, we're going to find we're insights from that data and that's going to provide value to our customers. I mean, Intuit did this many years ago, you know, around QuickBooks. And they said, you know what? We know the salaries of certain roles at a, at a zip code level, right? Well, wouldn't you want to know that if you were hiring someone? They say, well, yeah. So they, in my mind, that was really one of the first companies that really kind of conceptualized the value of something that only they had. And they figured out maybe not how to monetize it, but make it create more value in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of that mentality that companies are now trying to capture and they're trying to figure out how to, not only what is it, but how do we engender a culture that helps us figure that out. And the reason why I really like the mapping exercise um, was because I think it, it kind of put it in black and white, maybe looking in hindsight, right? But really putting more in black and white in terms of, of what are these sort of vices or devices or approaches that thinking about things maybe vis-a-vis this map, we can see things maybe we didn't see before. And that's why I really liked, you know, the the work that we've done together because it certainly for me, it was a new insight and against a world that I'd been living in. And I think that other companies, when they they can look at Adobe and think Adobe is the poster child for you know, digital innovation from the perspective of going from uh, desktop software to SaaS. But there's so much more to that story than meets the eye. And I think that, you know, when we started to describe that story, that's when it really it really resonated with me. This is, this is, this is beyond just, you know, the digitalization. This is beyond just, oh, we're going to go from, you know, desktop to cloud. And so that's why um, I really liked the mapping exercise that we did together. As a result of the mapping exercise, uh, what were some of the new insights you gained that you wouldn't have gained otherwise? And even more importantly, how, how have those insights helped you to make 
better decisions or different decisions than you might have made in the absence of that mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for for me personally, and I'll, I'd be interested in hearing what, what Mac and Martin have to say about this as well, but uh, for me um, personally, I wasn't part of the Omniture acquisition when Adobe acquired Omniture. And so I had read about it, and HBR did a nice piece on that. Um, But I didn't really realize kind of the motivating factors. Um, And the study of the marketplace and what companies were doing well and could survive the 2008 financial crisis... And those software companies that did well and inevitably had a software, subscription software as an offering. And so, you know, that was light years ago in in today's time, right, to have that kind of insight. And then coupling that with saying, oh, well, we want to work in an adjacency marketplace and that was the omniture part, so not just the creative, but the measurement of how well that creative did, and those went well together. But to me, the real insight came into, well, which company? A company that was a SaaS-based company and knew how, had a sales force and knew how to market and maintain customers who had software or subscription offering. And then the second piece was, the ability to integrate that culture into Adobe and make it work within within the structure that was already in play today. I think it's a it's a beautiful example how one can use the map in a merger or acquisition context. Because mm-hmm. if I want to buy a company or want to start an alliance with the company, I first need to know what knowledge assets do I have, both tacit and explicit, um, and what knowledge assets are lacking. And then I look at the partner organization and say, well, what kind of knowledge does that organization have? Is it a good fit? So um, do we need more subject matter experts? Do we need more patents? All of those are knowledge assets. And having a map of my own organization and a map of the future partner organization who can then assess whether those two portfolios of knowledge match and whether it makes sense strategically. The same then with culture, can we um, integrate the new organization? Um, Different organizations have different ways of dealing with their knowledge assets. Do they like to share it? Do they like to um, structure and codify it? Um, And before you start a merger acquisition, you should think about what kind of culture is prevalent and uh, what will happen when we bring those two organizations together. Now, I thought I thought what was fascinating about that particular case of the acquisition was the deliberate decision by your guys to say we're going to bring these people in and we're going to pay a great deal of attention to how they do things and what they want to do. So it was not an acquisition of a, you know, a big fish swallowing a guppy. It was somebody being able to recognize as these are competences and capabilities that we need to ingest ourselves and we need to recognize them mm-hmm. as being able to contribute beyond just being you know, somebody that we buy. And, uh, and I think Martin has a, 
You know, he's got a great point there is to say that if we think about acquisitions, uh, let's really think about the uh, the implementation of the acquisition as well as uh, just what the what the technical reasons are for such an acquisition. And that's the, the important point. Digitalization is not only data. It's not only technology. It is the capabilities, experience, expertise of people. Um, and you have to get the right team together with the right experience and expertise um, to then develop digital products. Mm -hmm. And so it goes beyond the algorithms, beyond the databases. We also have to look at uh, the more intangible assets of an organization and how they enable the whole transformation process when it comes to digitalization. Yeah. And actually, the, the people part is a really, really key point. I want to just touch on that for a second. Um, because I think what happens, tech companies are acquiring all the time. I mean, this is really you know, how, how they acquire adjacency or new technologies and expand their revenue. Um, so this is pretty standard place for tech companies to acquire, and so they need to be really good at it. And um, it, it, I think the issue comes with the, with the cultural part, right, and that the, the companies that get acquired are not allowed to thrive and survive. And I think Adobe has a really good way of, and, and has... I mean, many, many acquisitions at this point, beyond Omniture, certainly, um, on both the digital media and digital marketing side, whereby the incoming company is really, uh, their culture really is allowed to continue to survive, but that cultural mat really is made up front in when the decisions about, you know, which technologies do we want to add? Oh, and is the culture going to map? It's key because... You know, two years come around, a lot of tech companies lose all those people from an acquisition. And and we just haven't seen that attrition. I mm. think that, you know, the, the way that Adobe has acquired companies and allowed them to thrive and survive and then integrated them has worked really well because we, we just don't suffer that, that, that level of attrition. So just as, as you're talking, it struck me that one of the things that might distinguish what you've done uh, in the context of the framework that we've been promulgating is that you're looking at knowledge not as digits, you're looking at knowledge as properties of, uh, you know, a, a decision management financial generation process. So you're looking at the processes and uh, looking at whether there's a fit between the way things are being done mm -hmm. in the let's not call them a target, but, but the, the acquire, acquiree and, 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 and your company and, and say, is there a fit there in the way we do things mm -hmm. and the way that we process knowledge rather than, hey, those guys, we're going to buy their knowledge and exploit it. You have a very different perspective on it. And that's that, I think that sensitivity that helps explain some of the success that you guys have had uh, with the unfolding of your company into this this future that you generated a few years ago. Yeah, I think we, we I certainly hope so. I've only been on the, I haven't been in, in a small company acquired, yeah. so I'm not sure what that view is like, but I know I do know that um, do, the people do stay. So yeah. I think that's a really great, because we're not just sieving knowledge, yeah. right? We, well, we're acquiring the technology and we're acquiring the knowledge and keeping it. Keeping them both. Well, I think that's a very powerful point because, you know, the reality is that 
in technology companies, people can vote with their feet. Yeah. And there ain't too many feet leaving your operation once they purchase. That's a, you know, a good indicator that yeah. you're doing something that uh, attends to what their needs are. Well, at the end, culture is behavior. Yeah. And behavior is, I mean, you have to really motivate people to... to uh, to stay, to, to be innovative. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if I were now a decision maker in a big tech company, well, um, look at your behavior. Um, how do we incentivize people to incorporate new ideas, new knowledge into the company? Mm-hmm. How do we incentivize people uh, to take uh, subject matter experts and uh, codify some of their knowledge uh, and then share it with, with others? Mm-hmm. So it goes down to what's your knowledge management behavior. But one question that struck me while the three of you were speaking, and thank you for this really fascinating discussion, is in addition to mergers and acquisitions, could you use some of the ideas in this framework for alliances? Uh, because it, uh, the same situation might apply where <coughs> you, you may realize that you need certain kinds of ideas and certain capabilities that you don't have. And even before you make an acquisition, you might just have an alliance with someone that has those. So how, if you wanted to do this in the context of an alliance rather than a merger, how, how, how should an organization think about it that way? Well, I think it's going back to our little framework. Remember the two axes, mm-hmm. structure mm-hmm. of knowledge, diffusion of knowledge, um, and plot your portfolio of critical knowledge assets uh, what do you have in each of the four quadrants and then uh, look at certain gaps uh, where are the gaps and uh, can we fill some of the gaps with an alliance uh, Mac and I have done some research now on ecosystems and looking at all the different players the different stakeholders that contribute to success uh, we looked at education we looked at uh, pharma and uh, once you have mapped out your portfolio of knowledge assets and uh, strategized around what is missing, you can then start alliances uh, with different stakeholders to fill the gaps. Uh, And uh, I think more and more industries are characterized by this ecosystemic uh, view that you need to make many stakeholders happy, but you can also draw from the capabilities and competencies of those different stakeholders. And I think with technology, we see the same, that there are many people um, involved and uh, how can we leverage their knowledge assets to complement our portfolio Mm -hmm. of knowledge assets. Uh, Jill, Mac, do you have any thoughts? Would you face different risks in an alliance rather than in a merger? I'm interested. I, I have a comment to make, but I'm interested in what Jill's reaction is to that because I don't know the extent to which you guys have formally looked at alliances. Well, I, I think, you know, tech companies are, and just by virtue of, you know, we're frenemies. <laughs> I mean, there's so many alliances and you're competing with the same company, you're a partner with them, and that's that's just kind of the way it is. I would say the thing that has changed over maybe the last 10 years is this whole idea of developers being part of that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So these are, um, you know, independent entities. um, And you can look at, you know, that, you know, Apple's platform, right, of creating apps. And then they also have a delivery vis-a-vis the app store for developers to play in. So developers are a huge part of the tech uh, tech's ecosystem and um, if you start to think about 
uh, creating a platform now where developers can take and white label and, and, and create versions of your technology. Um, that is another conduit to the marketplace, right? And so that ecosystem, the alliance, partnerships, and now developers, you know, it just continues to get larger and larger and you have a lot more dependencies on being able to sustain that type of a, a large ecosystem. Um, and that's why a lot of companies are coming into creating platforms that allow a developer to take pieces of that technology and, or add on into your technology mm. as a way of expanding your technology footprint and also expand your talent footprint mm-hmm. so that the, this ecosystem continues to grow and grow and grow. And it's a beautiful example of the importance of being strategic around diffusing knowledge. How much knowledge do you want to share and with whom? But that should be a deliberate decision Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, leadership should think about, well, what do I want to keep to myself? What do I want to share? How can I create uh, an ecosystem that accelerates the innovation cycle? For that, I have to share some knowledge, um, but I don't want to share everything because I need to keep my uh, core competence um, so with our framework, I think one can make those strategic decisions and see what to share, what to hold on to. And of course, tacit knowledge is more difficult to share. Um, but uh, you'll have to see the whole map um, and the combination of both tacit and explicit and then see what do I share and what do I keep. You know, I was thinking uh, that... Probably if you think about alliances, there's a time dimension and a sort of pragmatic recognition recognition that, uh, you know, for a period of time, both parties will be able to extract value from the relationship, mm. but uh, it's going to end. So I think what you need to be thinking about is what's going to end and let's think a little bit about what we're going to pay and what we're going to receive in order to benefit from the alliance and be very clear on that and know that it's going to eventually going to end rather than go in there thinking that uh, somehow or other when the time is ripe we will have a we will have a a, a divorce which is non-confrontational I mean that's the fundamental problem with alliances that don't work is people find they're not getting what they want out of it and then it's a, it's a mess getting out of it if I can turn to one final question for all of you. Uh, as you think about the framework and the way in which your experience at Adobe sort of maps into the framework, as it were, uh, what are some of the most valuable lessons to be learned that other companies could benefit from uh, as they think about their own digitalization journeys? Um, Jill, start with you, perhaps. Um, so it, it, it's, I mean, digitalization and transformation, it's a huge spectrum there. Um, the one thing that when I, when I work with clients um, that uh, I, I hear myself continue to say is, what is it that you have that is unique today mm-hmm. that you could use to add value to your customers, not necessarily monetize it in a 
new stream of revenue perspective. Maybe it's just making a process easier for a company, or maybe it's just helping, uh, you know, see a trend in the case of what, what we did, right? Um, I, and I, I hear myself saying that because I think that many companies are actually sitting on treasure trove yeah. of information that in aggregate they would be fine to, to share that and that it would add immense value to their customers, which then, of course... It's reciprocal. It helps their customers um, enjoy working with them more. So I, that's the one thing that I continue to think of, and I, and I guess it comes back to, you know, how do you elucidate that, right? And I think that that is kind of the reason why we're here is to talk about how to elucidate that kind of strategy around your knowledge. And that's kind of where this whole mapping exercise comes in. Martin? Well, that was a beautiful illustration of what you can do with the map. I think overall we have to go beyond the algorithms and beyond uh, the codified structured knowledge um, and really link it to the tacit knowledge assets that an organization has. And as Jill pointed out, there are so many knowledge nuggets in your organization. You have to uncover them. And then the beauty of digitalization is that you can take them, further structure them, and thereby reach a broader audience. Uh, and I think companies that are skillful in identifying um, the tacit, intangible assets of an organization and then selectively uh, codify and structure them, they can really add a lot of value to their customers and their ecosystems need and thereby will be the innovators of tomorrow. Mac, you had the last word. Yeah, well, that's hardly a smart thing to do is give me the last word. <laughs> I was just, as, as the, these two guys were talking, I was thinking that uh, you could probably break it down into that kind of classical two-by-two two of what do we know that we know and what do we don't know that we don't know? And I think one of the key things that the mapping does for you is for you to begin to think about stuff that I know that others may not know mm-hmm. that might have value. And I don't even know that it's valuable because I haven't really thought about it. I haven't thought about what is this knowledge out there that I have that we haven't recognized. And then the other one is as I look at what I'd like to be able to do, what don't I have? And can I begin to think about how I could go out there and begin to pick it up, which is exactly what you guys did uh, when you first started down this path. And that's to basically say there's some people out there that have capabilities and there are people out there that have uh, ways of doing things that we could benefit from. So though it was not a formal mapping, you guys had done informally exactly what we are talking about, map the knowledge and then have a look at who else might have it or who might benefit or uh, we might be able to import their knowledge to help us accomplish our purpose. But if you don't have a mapping, uh, if you don't have a map, uh, you can wander every which way and never find anything at all. So it's a, it's a kind of a knowledge treasure map that you're busy trying to map out. It's mm. great. But th- th- thanks to all three of you, Jill, Martin, Mac. Thanks so much for joining us in Knowledge at Wharton today.
Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.